Today's episode features Hugh McCutcheon, who is the head women's volleyball coach at the University of Minnesota and also coached both the U.S. men's and women's Olympic volleyball teams to medals. I loved hearing about his approach to leadership, especially in this time of coronavirus and the impact it's having on college campuses. Hugh is an inspiration, both in the way he leads others and in the way he teaches us to lead ourselves. It's a great conversation, and I'm so glad I get to share it with you. Hugh, it is such a pleasure to have you here. Kate, thanks for having me. Great to be here with you. I'm going to start off with just a few opening questions to help people get to know you. So first off, where did you grow up? I hail from New Zealand originally, the the far, far south, and was born and raised there and came to the States in the early 90s to play college volleyball and, uh, you know, went and meandered around the world for a few years after I graduated and came back and got into coaching and here we are. Yeah. I've always wanted to go to New Zealand. It looks like an incredibly beautiful place. It's a nice corner of the world. Yeah, I'd recommend it. If you get the chance, you should go. (laughs) (laughs) And you now live in Minnesota, right? Yep, yep. We're here in Minnie, and it's been great. My wife and I have a couple of kids, and I was coaching in the international arena, as you spoke to earlier, and, and that was great. The Olympic world and all that stuff is wonderful, but the goal for me was always to try to be number one dad, not number one coach, and I felt with all the travel, it, it was just hard for me to feel like I was honoring my commitment to being a dad if I was on the road for you know, 130, 150 days a year. The opportunity, you know, came up to, to work here in Mini, and, and it's been great. Yeah, we're really fortunate. What was your first job ever? First job ever was when I, when I first started going to university in New Zealand, I had a job in the summers working for the Christchurch City Council. So I was digging ditches and pouring concrete and putting asphalt on the road and weed spraying along the parks and stuff, and it was awesome. It was one of the best educations you could get (laughs) working with a lot of different people who've had a ton of different experiences and it it made you realize how connected people are and and, you know even though we want to see well the media maybe or I don't know generally there's the view that everyone's quite different that's where you learn that everyone's pretty much the same in in a lot of really important ways and yeah there are differences no question but the people are people that's a great lesson to absorb at the beginning of your career yeah, it was really, really important. Yeah. All right. I'm going to ask about your current job, but what I want you to do is describe your current job in three verbs. Coaching, teaching, and I want to say mentoring, but I also understand that administration is a big part of what I do. <laughs> so uh, can you give me four? Absolutely. That's great. Thank you. And then just for something fun, what's something that you've enjoyed lately, like a movie or a book or a TV show or even a hobby, something that's making you happy these days? You know, the biggest thing for me lately, and, and it's the silver lining in, in all of the, the COVID stuff that we're all in amongst is just more time with my family. I, I honestly don't remember a time in the last 25 years where I've slept in my own bed for six months in a row. So uh, it's, it's been a remarkable bonus for us to hang out more. Yeah, I love that. That's something I've felt too, that this time has given me the opportunity to get closer to the people I love the most. All right, so I'd love to get into it a little bit. And first, could you talk a bit about your coaching philosophy? Sure. You know, coaching is an interesting vocation because it's maybe the perception 
is that, you know, you roll up to practice and you, um, you know, throw the ball out and magic happens and, and that's it for the day. And that would be great if, if that were the job, but it's so far from the, the reality of, of what uh, this job is to me anyway, which is basically in the college world currently using sport as a mechanism for teaching life. And um, there's a, a need to, to have competitive success, no question. But, you know, philosophically in the college space anyway, we, we try to take a very holistic approach to what we're doing where we want to be about competitive excellence. And, and if you want, we can talk about why I'm not telling you that we want to be about winning. Uh, to me, those are very different things. We want to be about academic excellence because as much as our athletes aspire to go on and play professionally or play on the national team or, or, or whatever, the reality is that their degree, which at this point is probably their plan B, is, is absolutely their plan A. And so everyone has to graduate. That's, that's the deal. And then finally, we want to be about personal development and at this time in their lives, I think it's a very interesting and formative time. I think there's a lot of stuff that can happen that can be profoundly positive and great. And there's some things that can happen that can be soul crushing and, and, you know, set you on a bad path moving forward. So we're trying to teach life skills through sport where the beauty of that is you can make mistakes in our gym and you can make mistakes in sport and the collateral damage is not nearly as significant if you make those mistakes may be out in the real world. And so teaching skills like how to learn, how to work, you know, self-discipline, how to be a good teammate, how to work with others, how to communicate, how to connect in authentic ways. All of those are really important things that are so transferable beyond whatever we're doing on the court. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about things that you do that build trust both among the team and the team trusting you and the coaching staff? Sure. Yeah, I think trust is um, manifested in teams in three different ways. And, and certainly, trust is the currency that makes all high-functioning teams work, no doubt. So to that end, first, the athletes have to be able to trust themselves. And I say that from a position of being able to execute the skills of the game that they know standing out there that they can do what they have to do to win the next point versus hoping because those are very different positions to be competing from. So our job as coaches is to help equip them with uh, fundamental mastery that they can, they've got some repeatability that, that, that they don't have to worry so much about outcomes. They can just focus on process and do it right. And when you do it right, generally the outcome works out really well. We need athletes to build trust within the team and, to that end, we, we have a very strong expectation about how those teammate interactions go. I think, especially on women's teams, there tends to be a, a very, uh, I think, a false expectation of an almost kind of sorority-like feel that we're all going to be best friends forever and, you know, that we're going to put our arms around each other in the timeout or hold hands or do something. And, you know, my experience is that that's just been really far from the truth and seldom is that expectation of, I guess we'll call it faux friendship, does that ever lead to real authentic connection? I, I think if we're going to get into trouble, which you do in sports, at some point it's going to get big and there's going to be something significant on the line. You want to look people in the eye and feel connected to them in a real sense, not just in a fake way. So to that end, as a teammate, there's an expectation of what that behavior should look like. And there are certainly some boundaries about what those interactions should be. But there are things like treat each other with respect, be honest, be loyal, and, and not blindly loyal, but have each other's backs. 
be inclusive. We're not here to divide and conquer. We're all in it together. But things like that, behavioral expectations that make it very clear about how these things should go, because we understand that life is going to throw us enough curveballs as it is, but we're not interested in, in a culture that promotes anything other than people being on task and committed and working towards the collective goal of the group. So that teammate thing is really important. And lastly, they've got to trust us as coaches. And, and so I, I think coaching comes with a huge responsibility. People are investing the most precious resource they have in your endeavor, and that's their lives. And so to that end, as a coach, you have to be consistent and you have to operate from a position of ethical integrity and all that stuff. But the, the biggest question as a coach is, are you trustworthy? You know, I mean, should people trust you? And absolutely, if you can get the buy-in, you know, I tell people all the time that coaches were salespeople and then we get to be change agents. But if we can't get the buy-in, if we can't sell it, then we're not going to change anything. So, but if you can get the buy-in and, and you can be a source of consistent action consistent emotion and consistent value-add knowledge, then it's probably going to work out pretty well. Yeah, I love that. I find that to be very true that clear and consistent communication seems to be the key to making people feel like they understand what the goals are and they can trust you. And just to add to this, I mean, if the athlete walks into the gym and their first thought is, well, how, how is the coach going to be today? Are they going to be angry or are they going to be giddy or happy or sad? Or they have to get the temperature in the room first before they can even decide to engage in the task at hand. And that's a lot of energy spent on stuff that isn't helping us get better. Yeah, I've never played at the level that you're coaching, but I grew up playing sports, mm -hmm. field hockey and soccer, and then I played rugby. And I had some coaches who were more along the lines of what you're saying. You know, my goal here is to serve you, help you be stronger and become a better player. And then I had some that were the, you know, lead by fear, including for just little kids. I mean, I can remember being screamed at as a second grader oh, on the nice. soccer field, you know, and I think there is that tenor sometimes in coaching that they think this is the way to get good behavior to get people to try their hardest if they are afraid of me they are going to push themselves harder i know there are you know olympic coaches who are doing that kind of fear-based coaching as well so um, i just love to hear your reactions to that what you've seen and what you've experienced in terms of those different coaching styles yeah i mean i only know what i know relative to the method that i believe in but I also had experiences growing up with coaches that were yellers and screamers. And, and I've also seen teams that have been driven by more fear base or, you know, leadership by rule versus leadership by empowerment. And I, I think just philosophically for me, our, our job is to empower our athletes to be able to make the right choice at the right time, to give them the tools and, and the mental capacities to be able to take information and figure out what to do. When you lead by rule, really all you're developing is a bunch of rule followers. And, and there's a, a space for me that's very real. You know, like I want our athletes to choose to do the right thing because it's the right thing on and off the court versus feeling like they're just doing it for fear of a consequence. You know, they're, they're not looking at why am I doing this or why should I not do it? They're just doing it because it's a rule in a rule book. And that seems to absolve them of any really responsibility in that decision. And uh, I, I don't think life tends to work out like that. You know, when, you, when you're outside of the team, at some point, you got to choose to do the right thing on your own. And we'd like people to be able to do that. Just generally, that's how I see it versus, you know, empowerment and rules and control. When we're talking about the yelling and screaming, I mean, there's times where 
you got to raise your voice. You got to get people's attention. But I tend to find that if you're yelling all the time, people just tune it out. It's just noise. And more importantly, you know, you're speaking to me about an, an experience you had as a second grader that you remember quite clearly about someone that was yelling at you. And I think about youth sport in particular as, as the introduction that our young people have to this wonderful thing of, of sport, exercise, competition. You know, we could be developing all kinds of wonderful lifelong habits here. And yet it's reduced to this outcome-based activity where it, it becomes about wins and losses and yelling and screaming and all of this stuff, which just seems like you can potentially do so much damage to young people in this very formative time in their lives that can last a lifetime. So I think, you know, especially when we talk about the youth piece, we should be a lot about inclusion and instruction. It should be a positive space. They need to learn how to make mistakes. They, you know, they need to learn how to learn from them. And the idea of getting berated seems a little bit crazy. It seems like you're probably making it more about the coach than it ever was about the team. And it shouldn't be about the coach. It's up to us as coaches, but it's not about us. Yeah. Do you find it different? I mean, you're in a unique position and that you've coached both men and women and at the college level and at the Olympic level. Do you find it different in coaching men versus women? There are differences, certainly. And I'll preface all of this by saying that I, in no way am I saying that I'm the you know, world's leading expert in gender differences in sport or anything. But, but certainly, there were way more similarities than there were differences. And you know, volleyball in particular is one of the sports where they change the actual physical constraints of the, of the game to allow for the difference in height and power so that the men are playing on an eight-foot net or approximately eight feet. And they're touching, you know, at the Olympic level, our guys were touching over 12 feet. So they're jumping and touching. And so we could play fast and, and hit it high and hard, and, and it was great. And the women's net is around 7'4". You know, on the national team, we had athletes that were touching over 11 feet, so they could jump high and hit hard too. And so tactically, there were a few differences, but men and women are prone to the effects of gravity and, and the forces of the laws of physics like everyone else. So the, the idea of the constructs for skills and the systems that we're playing weren't that different. The biggest shifts for me were in terms of communication and connection. And, you know, that was a pretty good learning curve for me about how to interact and how to engage and how to connect with everybody. I think if we talk, and again, these are very sweeping, broad strokes that we're talking with here, but with the men, it was much more about managing the ego and trying to chip through the armor to get them to be vulnerable enough to want to make change. With women, it was more trying to help them overcome any spaces in terms of fears or insecurities or, or anything like that to allow them to understand just how good they were. And so if we had a timeout, for example, Kate, and I was somehow concerned about the a lack of defensive effort. If I'm coaching a guy's team and I, I make a statement about how we've got to play better defense, most of the guys in that timeout are looking at the guy next to him and thinking, oh yeah, he's talking about that guy. If you have that same timeout with the women, they're all thinking, well, he's talking about me. So just being able to adapt your communication style for situations like that is something that I found to be pretty interesting, but also really impactful. Yeah, that's fascinating. One of the things we've sort of talked about, but I want to address more directly is we've talked about the different coaching styles and, and you have a coaching style that it sounds like driven in part by what you talked about at the beginning, which is the idea that 
you're coaching for life. It's more about how we live our lives and not necessarily how we get through this one game, right? Mm -hmm. But people are coming to you from all different backgrounds. And some people are, you know, more used to a more fear-based coaching style. From my own experience of sports, I know there are plenty of athletes who are showboats and want the the game to be all about them. And they're Mm -hmm. used to Mm -hmm. having had that amplified through the way they've been spoken to and coached. So how do you address those kinds of differences when you're trying to get everybody to be on the same level? First of all, all, in in college, I think we have a responsibility to define success for our program a lot of different ways. When you're in the Olympic space, it's a little bit different. Your athletes are professionals. The USOC or or USA Volleyball, whoever it was, they're investing a lot of money into your program. And Essentially, it's four years to be good for the last two weeks to hope to be good for the last two hours. It's a very unique space to operate in. And there's no doubt that the expectation or the hope is to to get on the podium and come away with some hardware. So it's a different space to operate in. But even though the outcome is really important in that world and and that's what it's all about, I, I still think the commitment to process is critical. And the personal development piece... Obviously, the academic thing isn't, isn't an issue, but the personal development piece, there's something there relative to the idea of character off the court tends to lead to character on the court. For many of our athletes, they were you know, longer in the tooth, and so the die was pretty much cast in that regard. So this idea of holistic teaching or mentoring across all these different spaces is much more a collegiate thing than it was an Olympic thing. That being said, yeah, people are different, and teams are full of people, and everyone has baggage. It's just that some people's suitcases are bigger than others. So it gets to be a bit of a, I don't know if about a a balancing act, but, but it's important to one, as the coach, get to know your athletes and equally, if not more importantly for them to get to know you, but also that they have to spend some time trying to get to know each other, which can be difficult, but having an, an essential understanding of someone's background story or, or their motives or why they're doing what they're doing really helps to build some understanding for some on-court behavior. Now, you might not necessarily agree with it or like it, but at least you have some empathy, which I think is very critical for teams. They have to have some basic understanding of one another, and, and hopefully that builds into something more significant, but that's a, a good place to start. Now, as you said, other people come in with different experiences of fear-based or control-based coaching. They have maybe been given the green light to to be the star and all that kind of stuff. And so one of the things that we all know about behavior is you get what you tolerate. And so when they come into your program, first of all, when we recruit athletes to come here, it's very clear what it's about. For example, you know, we talked to them about the three things we discussed earlier, academic excellence, competitive excellence and this personal development piece. But then within the volleyball constructs, we say, hey, we need people that can work hard and work hard. It's easy to talk about. It's a little bit more difficult to do. And lots of people say they can work hard, but I don't think everybody has that capacity or or maybe not everyone wants to develop that capacity. Second of all, they have to be able to learn and make change. We're very clear about the fact that teaching is what we're about and what got them to us isn't enough to get us to where we want to go. So they're going to have to make some changes. We talked to them about the fact that we want to compete. We're going to keep score on the weekend. So we, we surely need to keep score during the week. And we, we don't promise anyone a starting job and we don't promise anyone playing time. What we do promise is that we're going to invest 
completely in everybody's development, but it's a meritocracy and you can earn the right to play. And if, if you and I are in the gym today, Kate, and you know you're going to start this weekend, and I know I'm not going to start this weekend, well, then there's no real incentive for you to work hard today. And there certainly isn't any incentive for me to work hard today. But if you know that you've got to earn it, and I know that if I work hard enough and I can get a little bit better today, maybe I can have an opportunity to earn the right to play. Well, I keep you honest. And all of a sudden the gym is working at a much higher level and, and our commitment to the process is, is increased significantly. So yeah, we have said work hard, learn, compete. And then the last thing is this idea of being a teammate. I, a lot of teams will, will talk to you about we're a family and, and I, I understand where they're going with that. And I understand the idea of that, we're not a family. We're, we're trying to be a high-functioning team. And, and what I mean by that is that there's a level of dysfunction that comes with families that you've got to tolerate because you're all gen <laughs> genetically connected. If it's the fifth set and we're in a hole and I'm looking back and you know I've got my drunk uncle or my crazy aunt to side us out, I'm not going to feel good about that. But if I've got a teammate who I know has earned the right to be there, who works hard every day, who I can trust is going to come out and make a good play, then yeah, let's go. So the idea that we're families, I think is, it's a little bit warm and fuzzy, but I don't think that's accurate. So anyway, within all of that, you're asking, well, how do you deal with the differences? Well, we're very clear on expectations. We have a very clearly defined culture and we're consistent about how it gets applied. And obviously when people don't get what they want, they'll interpret everything however it best suits their needs. But I, I think we do a pretty good job of being who we are. You talked earlier about the importance of empathy and that people understand each other and where they've come from as part of building trust among the team members. Are there activities or exercises you do to help with that, to help people learn about each other and, and trust each other? Yeah, nothing too structured. We're, we're not spending a whole lot of time going to ropes courses and doing trust falls. We're more interested in authentic interaction and communication. So everybody needs to grab a cup of coffee or whatever with everybody else, making sure that they take some time to engage. And what we've found over the years is the more structure you try to give that, not that it becomes disingenuous, but there's, there's something about everybody understanding that it's important and figuring out how they're going to do it on their terms versus me or our program dictating how those interactions need to take place. All we know is that those interactions need to take place. So we try not to give it too much structure. We just have got to the point where everybody understands how important having that empathy is. And they generally figure out what works best for them and how that's going to occur. But yeah, you need it. So you're sort of setting the expectation of it. Yeah, I don't think it's right to really force that versus just letting it evolve. Now, if we can't do it on our own, then yeah, I'll step in and, you know, we'll change the rules of the game a little bit. But if they can figure it out on their own then and, and do it in a way that works for them, I'm fine with that. I'd love to hear more on that topic because we're in this really challenging time with the coronavirus. There's a lot of fear and people mm -hmm. are concerned about family members. I mean, a lot of people are having financial worries right now. There's a lot up in the air in higher ed in general. But the idea of things that come out of nowhere and knock us off course is not 
unique to this time. I mean, certainly over the years, I'm sure you've had team members who have lost loved ones or have had, you know, other kinds of difficulties. So um, how do you handle the hard stuff outside of the team? You know, when do you sort of realize it needs to be addressed? And then how do you address it? Well, there's a, a duality to team leadership that you have to be able to figure out. And that is you have a responsibility to every individual on the team, no question, but you also have a responsibility to the team. So to that end, you know, when, when personal tragedy does occur and you figure out how to, how to help them as best you can, and this is a very human moment and it has to be treated as such. You know, we're dealing with volleyball. It's six people in a bowl, right? It matters and we care about it. And so we have to be very human and very compassionate. No question. Now, on the flip side of that, we also have to get back to the team. And so, okay, our team member is dealing with this issue. That's her issue. And we've got to be supportive of her. But we also have to make sure that it's it's not our issue, that we have to still take care of the task at hand. And so... On the one hand, with the, with the athlete that's grieving, for example, this is the, the path we're down, we got to be really connected and help and be very human. And then on the other side of it, we've got to be able to say, hey, we've still got to go out and play tomorrow. And here's the plan. We got to get back to work. And the athlete is being taken care of. Duality, as I described it to it, that I think you have to be able to pull off. You have to be able to do both. And how are you talking to your team these days when there's so much turmoil going on? It's incredibly challenging times for everybody from, as you spoke to, the the fears and the unknowns. I think everybody was probably expecting by now that we'd have a few more certainties, but we still have way more questions than we do answers. And so to that end, really trying to manage this on a day-to-day basis is the best strategy that we've found to somehow get through all of the concerns, all of the unknowns. And with the idea that if we can have enough good days, then all of a sudden we've had a a good week. And if we have enough good weeks, we've had a good month. And then, you know, away we go. It seems like we're on a good path. But if we spend too much of today worrying about tomorrow or worrying about yesterday, it probably doesn't help us to be at our best. For me personally, regular check-ins with our athletes. I meet with everybody every week. We talk about families, a little bit about volleyball, see how school's going, if there, there are any issues in terms of the mental health side of things, be that volleyball related or just in general. If they need to vent, they can vent. Uh, we just sit there and shoot the breeze. And I understand, as probably all leaders do, there's some space that gets created, I would imagine, relative to how much they're willing to share with me because ultimately I get to be a decision maker in this important part of their life. So I, I do think that we operate in truth, but, you know, I'm not there to be a counselor. I'm, I'm not, I can't, that's, that's beyond the, the scope of my professional expertise. However, the idea that I am there and that we chat and that these conversations get easier and they get more fulfilling or they, they get more substantive as we, as we continue to go, that consistency has, has really paid uh, good dividends. I think it's kept our team connected it's kept me engaged with our athletes. We can talk about a, a much broader variety of topics than just how to side out in rotation one. They know at least, even though I may not have all the answers to any of their problems, at least I'm, I'm there. I, you know, I care enough to be on the call and chat with them. And that's genuine. I mean, I'm not doing that because I feel like I've got to check that off a, a 
list. I do that because I think this is a weird time and my job should be to at least help them navigate it. I want to talk for a second too, though, about how you are keeping your own equilibrium now. And, you know, I'm sure you also have had really challenging times in your life. And as the team leader, you're setting the tone and people are looking to you. And so what are you doing to help yourself stay on balance now and in the past through other hard times? Yeah, you're right. We, as the leaders of these endeavors, set the temperature in the room often. The the place I stop for, for my own well-being would be to Again, you know, we're going to eat the elephant one bite at a time. We're going to go day to day, but trying to do the best I can with today and, and being able to, uh, I guess I'll use the word forgive, but to just be okay. If, if we didn't get it all right today, well, we'll have another crack tomorrow, but not to feel like I need to beat myself up too much if, if somehow mistakes were made. Within that also, I think just trying to feel like personally, if I can get a little exercise in a few times a week, that's great. If I'm spending some quality time with my family, if I can honor all the different commitments in my life. I mean, coaching's what I do, but it's not who I am. And what I try to be is, you know, a, a good husband, a good father and a good son. And, you know, and, and I try to be a good coach, but I'm trying to honor all these different things. So just doing the best I can in all these facets of my life. And when it gets hard, as I said, you know, now that I've been around the block a few times, being able to just take a breath and get back to, to where I need to be. The idea that if we can control ourselves, that we can somehow control our performance is a real thing. So just whenever I start getting into concerns or, or worries or speculation about unknowns, just being able to kind of refocus or recenter and get back to, hey, here's what we do know and here's the things that we can't control, so let's worry about those things. Doing that, I think, sets an example for those around me, but more importantly, helps me to be better at my job. I'd love to hear a story from you about a player who surprised you and the change, the transition that you observed through your time coaching that player, or about a time when the team was facing something challenging and the way they got through it, whether the outcome was a positive one or a negative one. Sure. One of the things that, that we talk about within our program often is this idea of making the decision where the decision is you go all in on making change and trying to become the best version of yourself on and off the court. But relative to our sphere of influence, you know, that we see that mainly manifested in terms of on-court behaviors. We've had a couple of different athletes along the way that, that have been great examples of that. You know, one in particular, as a freshman, came into the program and, and didn't play very much, was a, a good player coming out of club and high school, but showed moments of really strong performance. But those flashes of brilliance were often mired in large chunks of mediocrity. And then, you know, the next year, a little bit better, the next year, a little bit better. But by the time she became a senior, th there were unbelievable performances night after night after night that led her to become the conference player of the year and the national player of the year. And that was such an unexpected outcome for her relative to her starting position. To see that, that journey for her, to see her grow mentally, emotionally, and, and obviously physically, was really profoundly satisfying. And so much of her decision came from a 
an ability to overcome or to reconcile the doubts and fears and insecurities that she was dealing with in, in her first at least couple of years of her university career. And so that was just extremely gratifying to see someone overcome that because, as you know, fear is just such a limiting emotion. And so many of us live in that space, but, but fear is the curse. You know, you don't want to, a life in fear is never going to be a life in full. So you really need to figure that out. And, and it was just great to see her do that. And another player we had had a similar kind of path, although she played all the time from her freshman year to her senior year, but her journey was way more about learning to control her emotions and her performance from a you know, she would just go up there and was a bit of a blunt instrument, really, when she first got to us. I mean, her journey to learn how to play the whole game and to be defined by things other than just hitting it hard was also really cool. She ended up being the Big Ten Player of the Year for, for her senior year. But, you know, she went on and got to go to the Olympics and has had a wonderful professional career. And so these things are really unique to the individual. But like I said at the beginning, right, we all have baggage. It's just the, the suitcases are different. Each person, when they come through the program, they have probably a thing that they need to to get over or they need to reconcile or they need to figure out that's going to allow them to have the best chance of becoming the best they can be. And th that idea of self-actualization to, to have a chance to realize your potential is really easy to talk about, but it's so difficult to do. It stretches you to grow in ways that you're probably really uncomfortable doing, especially, you know, when you think about the athletes that are getting recruited have, have been really successful already you know they're not used to feeling inadequate or like they're coming up short they used to be in you know the stud but the problem is you know as you get further up the food chain you know being taller or stronger or jumping higher it's not a differentiating factor you know everyone's a stud so this idea of fundamental mastery again becomes this ability to differentiate yourself and that takes some time to get those skills in place so to see these athletes that worked on their mental game their emotional control their physical skills and then came out at the end of it with some tangible outcomes that that validated the amount of work they put in was really cool that's amazing Hugh and I'm just thinking as a parent, you know, I've got three kids and I'm, I'm so aware of how those mental tapes that can affect them. I see my kids who some days they're doing great and other days it's just they've told themselves a story and they walk into that test mm. and everything collapses. Um, so what are some things? I mean, what advice do you have? What do you tell your players to deal with that? Well, we start with the, the very real fact that at some point it's going to get big. And we talk about that from day one. So that the idea that adversity is seen as something that's going to happen and that we're going to have to deal with rather than seeing it as an exception, I think that's a good place to start. I mean, that's the reality of it. Our seasons are going to be defined by a few points and a few key moments in a few key matches. And how we respond to those moments really matters. So Within the construct of the mental game, I think that fundamental mastery is actually a really critical component of that. And what I mean by that is I spoke to you earlier about this idea of knowing that I've got what it takes to make the play versus hoping. So if it's a big moment and I know that I can do what I need to do, then I don't have to worry so much about my, I don't know, my performance or my, my outcome. I can really just focus on the task at hand, getting the information that I can and making the right choice at the right time. To me, that this idea that skill confidence is linked to skill competence is really important. 
And if I can expand that a little bit, Kate, if we look at the mental game and the physical game as separate, you know, a lot of people would see that mental proficiency or, or for example, in, in closed loop motor skills, those are activities where we have complete control over everything. So like a golf swing or a free throw, for example. But if we're, if we're talking about a free throw and we have a little mantra and we bounce it three times and we say a few things or whatever, and then we take a breath and then we shoot it. Great, right? We can have some nice repeatability in our routine. But if the mechanics of our shot are no good, right? If we have some biomechanical inefficiencies that are in our shooting action, then it doesn't matter how good our routine is. We're still going to throw a brick because our mechanics are off, right? So, <laughs> so many people think that the mental stuff is going to be this panacea, this, this ability to fix everything, and it's all going to be rainbows and ponies, but it's not because we need to have the fundamentals in place. Now, on top of that, as you spoke to, the, the narrative really matters. Self-talk is such a huge part of the mental game. And I would say just such a huge part of life. I mean, whatever the narrative is we're saying in our head, it probably ends up being true, right? From quantum physics and, and quarks and their color or whatever to the Pygmalion effect in psychological research, the expectation produces the result. We know this. Mm -hmm. And so we just really need to pay attention to what we're saying because every cell in our body is listening to our thoughts, whether we like it or not. Now within that, can we learn how to take a breath? You know, breathing is a is a really important part of getting re-centered, just stopping for a minute, pausing, not only breathing in, but finishing it. Just finish the breath and get back to being where you are with some oxygen in your lungs and some oxygen in your brain. I mean, that's real, right? Just smiling yeah. makes you feel better. So there's all of these different tools that you could have in the toolkit that are so far beyond being about sport performance. They can be about just life in general. How do we get to feel good? Well, there's things we can do. But the bigger question, and this comes from a really dear friend of mine who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago named Ken Revisa, who was a legend in the world of sports psychology. And, and the question he asks is, you know, are you that crummy that you've got to feel good to play good? And that's a wonderful question. You know, if we only can play good when we feel good, then we're probably not going to play good very often. Wow. Thank you. This is just all fascinating to me. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no sweat. All right. How can people find you if they want to follow you, stay in touch with you, keep an eye on what you're doing? You know, I, I have a random little university Twitter handle <laughs> that is McCutch <laughs> at McCutcheonMN, but I'm not fully engaged in social media because like I said, I think I'm a service provider. I want it to be about our kids. It's not about me, you know, our athletes, but anyone can email me at the university of Minnesota easy enough. Uh, it's not hard to find me, but yeah, uh, I, I love to talk to people about what we're doing and, and if I can help people, I'm happy to do it. But yeah, I, I don't have this large social media footprint at this point. I'm so grateful Appreciate that I had this opportunity to talk to you. I'm Kate, it was really a pleasure. And uh, just thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Best of luck. Likewise. Again, this is Katherine Manning. If you want to explore these topics further, don't forget to pre-order a copy of my book, The Empathetic Workplace, Five Steps to a Compassionate, Calm, and Confident Response to Trauma on the Job. Special thanks to Selena Porcaro for her help with today's episode. 